you go and read for the message today, <laughs> Romans chapter 7, in verse 13 through 20. De manera que la ley a la verdad es santa y el mandamiento santo, justo y bueno. Luego lo que es bueno vino a ser muerte para mí en ninguna manera, sino que el pecado para mostrarse pecado produjo en mí la muerte por medio de lo que es bueno a fin de que por el mandamiento el pecado llegase a ser sobremanera pecaminoso. Porque sabemos que la ley es espiritual, mas yo soy carnal y vendido al pecado, porque lo que hago no lo entiendo, pues no hago lo que quiero, sino lo que aborrezco, eso hago. Y si lo que no quiero, esto hago, apruebo que la ley es buena. De manera que ya no soy yo quien hace aquello, sino el pecado que mora en mí. Y yo sé que en mí, esto es en mi carne, no mora el bien. Porque el querer el bien está en mí, pero no el hacerlo. Porque no hago el bien que quiero, sino el mal que no quiero, eso hago. Y si hago lo que no quiero, ya no lo hago yo, sino el pecado que mora en mí. Amen. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the com commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desires to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Amen. Can we give God thanksgiving for his infallible, holy, holy word? Oftentimes when we uh, sit up under the word, we need to remind ourselves that we need to have some sort of intentionality to, to hear it and then apply it to our lives. Um, and so I want you to listen well and hear what the Lord has to say. And hopefully uh, we will be more transformed into the image of Jesus as we live it out. A celebrity chef, a celebrity chef said this statement about himself. Look, I understand that inside me there is a greedy, gluttonous, lazy hippie, you know. That's some honesty for yourself. I understand that there's a guy inside of me who wants to lay in bed smoke weed all day, and watch cartoons and old movies. Y'all want to play holy this morning like y'all don't know what he's talking about. Only high I know is the high of Jesus. Yeah, I know. He says, I could easily do that. My whole life is a, ser a series of stratagems to avoid and outwit that guy. I'm aware of my appetites. 
and I don't let them take charge. And if we were all honest this morning, we all got a little guy down inside of us. We might describe our guy's appetite a little different, but nevertheless, he is there. He wants to take charge of our lives. Last week, I described this little guy as indwelling sin or the flesh. Indwelling sin or the flesh. As Christians, we fight daily not to let this little guy take charge. That's one strong little guy. All Christians struggle with this little guy after salvation. And I mean, there are those out there that claim that they have reached perfection. Glory be the God for you. <laughs> one conversation with their family, and you will come to a swift conclusion that that little guy is still inside of them as well. No matter how nice their clothes are, and no matter how many Christianese terminology that they have, if we were to be honest this morning, some of us are not as nice as people think that we are. <laughs> I know in church, I, you know, I, I, I seem to be a little bit nicer, uh, but don't catch me in the middle of road rage. You, you may find that little guy slipping out. All of us wrestle with this little guy. Sin inside of us is a force. It's a law, an enemy that remains within us. It has been dethroned as king of our life. Don't get me wrong. As believers, sin has been dethroned as king of our life. And who is our king now? King Jesus. But sin wages, wages a guerrilla warfare against God's people inside of us. Friends, from the moment you put your faith in Jesus, God causes you to be born again. He causes you to come alive, to see and to know him, to pass from, from darkness to light, from death to life. Being born again is to be born of God by his Holy Spirit. And this means, as Peter, 1 Peter said, we are partakers of the divine nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. We are not normal people anymore. We are a royal priesthood. God has changed us from the inside out. We're no longer sinners. We are saints. And that's worth rejoicing over. We are partakers of the divine nature. But because we are partakers of the divine nature, a war is started on the inside. Since I became a Christian, it seems like everything is going crazy in my life. I didn't have these problems at first. Let me go to some of the newlyweds, right? When we were just chilling, doing things our way, everything was good. Then we got married and all hell broke loose. Just keep looking at me. <laughs> Nobody has to know what's going on in your household. Man, your business. There's a war within us. Why? One writer says this. 
Sometimes we think of the flesh as our enemy, but it only hates us because God is in us. Let me say that again. Sometimes we think of the flesh of our, as our enemy, but it only hates us because God is in us. He goes on to say, a treaty between God and the flesh is impossible. God and the flesh will never come to a peaceful agreement. And oftentimes we try to figure out how we can live in both spaces, how we can live in righteousness and unrighteousness. But God, light and darkness has nothing in common. Neither does God in the flesh. There is a tension between who we are in Christ and how we live out our Christian life. How does our position in Christ shape our practice in following Christ? How does our position in Christ shape our practice of following Christ? And can I be real this morning? There is a thin line between loving God and hating sin. Have you ever cried out, God, I love you and I hate sin, but Lord, I don't know why I keep on sinning. Do I got some real people this morning? God, I love you. God, I adore you. God, I want to worship you. But when I look up, sometimes I'm doing the very things that you hate. How can God redeem me and fill me with his spirit and yet I still struggle with sin? Romans 7, verses 14 through 20, Paul wants to relate to us. I'm so thankful that after reading this text, that an apostle struggled with sin. I got a little bit of relief when I seen that the apostle Paul, and you know, Apostle Paul, that was a bad boy. He loved the Lord Jesus Christ. But if he struggled with sin, I know your cute little self struggles with sin as well. If the, the Apostle Paul, I mean, caught up in the third heaven, Apostle Paul, seeing visions and dreams, God gave him messages direct. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul when they touched his cloth, people got healed. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul who planted all kinds of churches. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul who wrote half of the New testament if he struggles with sin you know good and well the person next to you struggles with sin so you can lay your mask down this morning and you can be honest and you can be real it's okay to say amen and if you can't say amen say ouch either one will work See if you can feel and identify with the drama and the intensity of his personal struggle this appears to be an autobiographical account of his struggle with sin in the law as a saved man. This is Paul struggling as a saved man. If Paul had this struggle, surely every Christian can expect to have a similar one. Last week we saw indwelling sin weaponizes God's law against us. And the law to create desires, not to obey the law. Paul is going to expand on that in verses 13 through 20, which is our text today. Let's encounter Paul for a moment. Friends, let me remind you once again of the man that is pinning these verses. Paul is a man that loves the commandments of God. He yearns to see them in his own life, lived out in obey. Paul 
loves the commands of God, especially the Ten Commandments, for they reflect God's holiness. They reflect God's character. What we see in the Ten Commandments is, is God's character coming forth, that God is holy and righteous and full of love and goodness. He wants God's will. He yearns for it, but finds that even as a saved man, he cannot do it in himself. Paul is in tune with the struggle with sin. He feels it in every fiber of his being. He hears its voice in the late night hours. He feels it when he goes to the grocery store. Of course, he went to the market at that time, probably rode a camel. No Uber. Had to walk. Just deal with yourself when you're walking. The apostle Paul didn't get a free pass with sin. We are reminded of this in Paul's confession in Philippians 3, in the heartbeat of the apostle. <clears throat> Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I feel like preaching this morning. Brothers... I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Come on, Apostle Paul. Spiritual maturity doesn't claim moral perfection, but it does press on. Spiritual maturity doesn't claim perfection, but spiritual maturity is one who has decided that I'm going to keep on pressing on. True believers are pressing on. As the old Negro spiritual said it, you can't plow straight and keep a looking back. If you want to get to heaven, let me tell you how. Just keep your hand on the gospel plow. Christians are pressing onward. But towards what? What is the goal? What is the mark? Is the question. Because a lot of people who claim to be Christian are, are pressing towards a lot of things. But the Bible is clear. There is only one goal. There is only one mark that we ought to be pressing towards. And it ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So make no bones about it. There's all kinds of gospels out there that tells you that if you strike it rich, you've, you've arrived. Mm -hmm. If you got no more troubles in your life, you've arrived. But friends, the Bible is clear. And I'm going to make it plain before I sit down that the only mark that we ought to be pressing towards is looking more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We got a little word we like to use in theology called sanctification. Sanctification is a Christian's progressive growth into the spiritual likeness of Jesus. Let me say that again. Sanctification is a Christian's progressive growth into the spiritual likeness of Jesus. 
While a big word, sanctification is a key word in understanding living the Christian life. The root of sanctification is sanctify. Y'all remember that sanctified feel with the Holy Ghost, right? <laughs> Which means to be made holy. Look at y'all. Me made holy? Did you see what I did yesterday? To be made holy. Paul uses this often, uses this term often, but most recently in Romans 6.22. Don't know if you caught this one. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to what? Sanctification in its end, what? Eternal life. Those who are being sanctified will be saved at the end. The gospel, hear me clearly, is not simply justification. Although justification is not simple. It's not merely, God is, God is not merely just concerned about you being declared righteous, but he also is concerned about you being changed by him. God didn't just save you. God wants to change you. If y'all knew what I just said, you just missed your shout right there. But don't worry, I got more for you. Change from what? From who we were and how we used to live to our new life in Christ. The highest desire of a Christian is not a bigger house, is not a bigger bank account, is not great children, but to become more like Jesus. That's the goal of every Christian. And parents in the room, if you really love your children, your highest desire for them is not that they graduate from college. That's a good thing. It's not that they become successful in business. That's a good thing. But your highest desire should be that God, whatever you do, save my babies so that they know you and so that they're in heaven when it's all said and done. That ought to be your highest desire. Wish I had some parents in the room that been on your knees crying to God at night. God, not for a degree, not for a car, not for a right husband, but for my babies. Know you. To know that there's a God that is alive, a God that is risen, a God that walks on water, a God that can do the impossible. Amen. I got to be real with y'all. I had to come down. I hit my hand kind of hard on that thing. Right? <laughs> that was a sanctifying moment. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I just got a little bit more like Christ after I hit my hand on that one. <laughs> I am crazy. <laughs> it just comes out. I got to let it roll. People in the world are pressing towards something. Rather, it's becoming more like the Kardashians. More like Juice World. Some of y'all may not know who that is, but the young folks know who I'm talking about. Some of them are pressing towards a successful business, but no make no bones about it. Everyone is pressing. 
Everybody wants to be like somebody. Y'all remember that song? I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. But the spirit in the believer is pushing him or her to be more like Christ. The biggest frustration for you, believer, should be that when you look in the mirror, you don't see more of him. Your biggest frustration, it should be that I don't desire you the way you are worthy to be desired. And hold on, you don't get it until you see more of his glory. The more of his glory you see, the more short you see that you are, the more frustrated you become and say, God, would you let me love you the way that your glory deserves it? I can borrow the words of Little Wayne. He says this, sometimes we fear who's in the mirror. We feel weird. Will it be the new us or the old us? But down in our souls, believer, if you get close enough, if you quiet your souls long enough, there's a, there's a chance. In our souls that say, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Christ. I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Christ. When I wake up in the morning, that ought to be your song. You need a song to get out of bed. It ought to be God. I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Christ today. That's the song when you get out of bed. But by the time you get to work. God, I want to knock somebody out. I, I, I know what I said earlier, Lord. Y'all know how we are. We fickle, right? I'll try it again tomorrow, Lord. <clears throat> how do we know what it is to be Christ-like? There's a lot of things that tells us a lot of ways to be Christ-like. But friends, the clearest description and depiction of what it is to be Christ-like is bound up in 66 books. And it gives you a clear picture of what Jesus looks like. And no one is becoming like Jesus if they are not reading the word of God. You cannot become something you do not know. It's as simple and just as plain as that. There's no shade. I'm just keeping it 100. If you do not know him, you cannot become like him. God has laid out clearly in his word what Jesus looks like. And you got to be careful because in our minds, we like to construe and make up our own Jesus. We like to make up a Jesus that's fitting for my situation. I like to make up a Jesus that's comfortable for me. I like to make up a Jesus that doesn't challenge me. But I don't want to be like that Jesus because that's idolatry. I want to be like the Jesus that's in the Bible. That ought to be our goal. Paul makes this clear over in the next chapter. Watch it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son. God's goal is to conform you into the image of Jesus. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's Romans 8.29. 
And this ought to be good news for you this morning, that all that God is doing, all of the trials, all of the hell that you're going through, all of your situations, the main goal, you may not know everything. You may not know all the details that God is doing because some people know God is doing 10,000 things that we have even imagined. We may know two or three of them, but I'll give you the main one. The main one is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And so when the trial gets tough and the darkness gets too dark, you remind yourself that God is at work to conform me into the image of Jesus Christ. You know what? My son, Dakai, taught me something this week. I love kids. They, they, they have a way of, of reminding you of things. I've never seen somebody get so happy over being musty. I, I know, I know, I know. My eight-year-old son, he called me in the bathroom. There he is right there. He says, Dad, Dad, you ain't going to believe this. Daddy, I'm musty and I need the order. But he said it with a happy smile. I'm like, boy, why are you so happy that you musty? Get in that shower. But I learned something. I learned something. He wasn't seeing. He was seeing must from a different angle. He seen that the must was a sign of him becoming a man, something that he desires to be. And sometimes we got to look at our trials from a different angle. They may not smell right. They may not taste good. But if you're looking at it from the, the right angle and see and what it is a sign of what's to come. You got a reason to rejoice. I said, thank you, son. That'll help me preach. <laughs> now get in the shower and sanctify yourself. <laughs> he, was joy he was rejoicing over the sign of what was to come. Friends, we got to understand that in our journey towards sanctification, Indwelling sin opposes it. Indwelling sin opposes our sanctification. Paul is pressing, and we are pressing because we are experiencing opposition. Sin in us is fighting against the Spirit so that we don't look more like Jesus, but instead look more like the world. If I can go back to an old illustration, Shonuf wants to be the master again. Y'all remember show enough, right? Romans 7 sounds on the surface like Paul has in eternal tug of war. Sin is pulling one way and the spirit is pulling the other way. At times we are being pulled towards Christ. And at times it feels like we're being pulled towards the world. Friends, there's a thin line between hating sin and loving God. But don't forget, friends, Romans 8 is on the horizon. Romans 7 describes the battle, but Romans 8 is going to describe the victory. But we're not there yet. we got to continue to dig into Romans 7. What does he say, say in Romans 7? Look at the verse. That that which is good then bring death to me by no means. Or to say it this way, that the law bring death to me. Paul uses the strongest language in the Greek and says, by no means. There's that incredible strong negative again. Paul wants to make clear that he has no issue with the law. He says, God forbid. So check it. Paul is like, hecky no, the problem here isn't the law of God. The law didn't bring death. It didn't bring life either. Well, Paul what did it bring? Watch the rest of the verse. 
in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandments, might become sinful beyond measure. Here is Paul's summary of the purpose of the law. It is not to bring death. The wages of sin is death. Sin brings death, not God's law. God's moral law shows sin to be sin. God's law tells us about God, but by doing so, it tells us about ourselves. Mm, Let me say that again. God's law tells us about God, and by a product, by product, it tells us about ourselves. The biggest and clearest mirror in the world for human beings is God. Why? Because we were created to be like him. So if we are going to understand, if we are falling short, we must look to God. The commandments reflect God and tells us how we are doing in regards to what matters most to God. Not wealth, not power, not fame, but holiness and righteousness and justice and love for our neighbor and godliness is what God cares about most. My question to you is, how are you doing? Paul says, watch this. (laughs) Me and Paul almost got into a fight on this. Paul says, you got to get in the Bible sometimes. I was like, is he talking about me? I think he's talking crazy to me. (laughs) Paul, how jacked up are we? Now, come on, man. I do nice things. I open, open the doors. I serve, you know, I I give. Come on, Paul. I can't, I can't be that bad. Now, come on, Paul. Let's, let's be honest. How, Paul, how bad am I? He says, we are sinful beyond measure. You didn't get an attitude? I knew I was bad. I didn't know I was that bad. Beyond, I'm so bad you can't measure it. I'm so bad you ain't got a tool for it. You ain't seen what I did. I know I'm bad, but I ain't know I was that bad. Bad beyond measure. In other words, the universe ain't got a tool to measure how jacked up you are. If you can't say amen, say ouch. How bad are we, Paul? You are sinful beyond measure. And no matter how much I preach it, no matter how much I say it, To some degree, we will never fully comprehend just how far short we fall of the glory of God. But let me see if I can help you a little bit. A lot of times when we talk about hell, people don't want to talk about hell. They get caught up on how can an eternal God, a loving God, allow people to suffer for eternity. But let me give it to you from a different perspective. When you think about one sin gets a person thrown into eternal hell forever, you ought to say, just how holy is he? Far beyond our imagination. We're not playing games here. God is holy. God is righteous. And we are sinful. He is a great savior, but we are great sinners. And on your best day, when you're acting right, You've been to church, you've been to Bible study, you've been to prayer, you checked out all the boxes. 
Mm -hmm. You was nice to your mother-in-law. You, you, I mean, you're doing everything. You're sending gifts to your enemies on your best day. You still fall short of the glory of God. Paul makes it clear that the law is spiritual, but the flesh is sinful. He makes a contrast between God's law and our flesh. Look at what he says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. The Mosaic law is spiritual. Why? Because it originated with God. Remember, God gave Moses those Ten Commandments and was given by the Holy Spirit. It reflects God's holy character. Paul is like the law is not the issue. What is the issue, Paul? Why can't you just walk in perfection like Jesus? He says this, but I am fleshly, sold under sin. Flesh refers to a weakness towards sin because of the sin nature. This is indwelling sin, the remnants of the old Colonel Paul. Shonuf has been defeated by Leroy, but he's still shooting bullets at us. The flesh dwells in us and assaults us daily. The flesh is like Satan. Satan is defeated, but he still is able to wreak havoc. There is a part of us, don't get me wrong, that cannot sin. We cannot sin in that part of our being. However, there is a flesh that lurks in the darkness, and it is wicked as it has ever been. It is as mean as it has ever been, and it still possesses all the same old ungodly, worldly appetites in you. Our flesh challenges us. Watch what's going on with Paul. He is a divided man. There's a part of him that want to serve God. And there's a part of him that can't stand God. And they are at war. Sin is at war with you. And if you live a casual Christian life, it is going to creep up on you. Sin doesn't sleep. It is a law. It is a force inside of you. None of us are neutral. We're always being pulled. Look at the competition within. Watch them. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. You're starting to relate to them yet? But I do the very thing I hate. Let me say that one again. For I do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I can relate to that man. I know exactly what that feels like. I want to do good, and I keep doing the very thing I don't want to do. Paul acknowledges the battle within. He is in competition with himself. There is a part of him that wishes to obey God's law, and a part of him that wants to eat from the only tree in the garden that God forbids. Paul wants to be like Christ. But he is enticed by sin to be everything that Christ is not. The word here he uses is stilo, which means that which is predetermined. That which one is totally given to see it take place. Paul says that he is determined to do good. 
He rises out of his bed determined to do good. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to pray today. I'm going to read my word, and I'm going to love my neighbor. And then he uses another Greek word, missio. Whatever it is that he is referring to is obviously something that he detests. He doesn't want to do it, but seems unable to stop himself. This reminds me of Peter. When Peter said to Jesus, of all else forsake you, God, I won't forsake you. I believe that in that moment, Peter had all the attentions and all the affections not to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how it is. God, when I get to this club, I ain't going to do none of what they're doing. I'm going to be right. I'm here to witness about you. For that night over with, you know, slid on over to some ungodly. But Paul is saying that... Let me go back to Peter. That's safe. <laughs> Peter looks at Jesus. He looks him in the eye. He says, Lord, if everybody else forsake you, I'm your boy. I got your back. I ain't going nowhere. Jesus says, Peter, they're going to deny me. No, I'm not. God, you don't know what you're talking about. How many people have told God that? God, you don't know what you're talking about. God, you got this wrong. I'm stronger than what you think, God. I didn't memorize some scripture. I'm ready, God. <laughs> By the time, y'all know the story. By the time Peter gets into the courtyard and he sees what they're doing to Jesus, he had amnesia. And he said, what? I don't know the man. I don't know who he is. I ain't never seen him. I ain't, I ain't, I ain't seen Jack. I don't know who he is. I don't know who that is. You were with him. I wasn't with him. But a few chapters ago, I was determined to follow you. I was determined to go to the cross with you. God, I was going to bear my cross this morning. God, I promise you, I was going to bear my cross this morning. But by the time the nighttime come, I didn't lay my cross down, and I'm doing everything that Dexter wants to do. Galatians 5.17 says this, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Minds us of Jesus, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what? The things you want to do. This is real competition on the inside. Now let's keep going. Now if I do what I do not want, he sounds like a crazy man, doesn't he? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. What you talking about, Paul? Even when I sin, I still say the law is good and agree with the law and what it has to say about my actions. And this awful practice of doing what he hates, Paul is agreeing with the law and showing that the law is a good thing. And the issue is within me. Paul realizes no matter how hard he tries to obey God in his flesh, he continues to fail. And the law exposes the flesh to be evil. There is a competition for control. Paul realizes no matter how hard he tries, he cannot keep God's 
law. It is similar to the guys in the gym or myself. But Jonathan's here, so he's no, I'm telling the truth. No matter how much I determine that I can lift 300 pounds, I cannot lift 300 pounds. The 300 pounds exposes my inability to lift it. And I must admit my weakness and that the 300 pounds is greater than I. If I want to lift 300, it is not the 300 that needs to adjust, but it is I who need to adjust. But when it comes to lifting the weight of the law, Paul shows us practically why every man, whether saved or unsaved, must recognize the evil in his own flesh cannot lift the weight of the law. Something needs to adjust. Paul is in competition with his old self. He sees the opponent within. Look at verses 17 through 18. So now it is no longer I who do it. What is wrong with Paul? But sin that dwells within me. Underline that. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Let me say that one more time. I know that nothing good dwells in me. They got a good heart. No, they don't. Nobody has a good heart. Nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I have a desire to lift the 300 pounds, but I do not have the ability to do so. Paul isn't blame shifting here. We can't blame the devil. We love to blame the devil. The devil made me do it. That's a classic Christian remark. I was doing good. The devil got me. (laughs) He backed me in the corner. You should have seen him. Man, man, how did that joker look? Because I ain't seen him yet. Man, I'm telling you, man, he came in all kinds of forms. Man, he made me do it. And we can't blame indwelling sin. No, we are still responsible for what we do. Paul is identifying the problem, not the law, me, old me, oh sinful me, still dwelling inside of me. Paul tells us that there are two Pauls within. One wants to do right and the other wants to do wrong. And these two men, they share one body and they fight over everything, like my children. Fight over everything. And some of us just buy them two of everything to solve it. Can't buy another body. Part of the issue with sin in our lives is we don't hate it enough. Part of the issue with sin in our lives is we don't hate it enough. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, you have not resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. We don't hate it enough. We don't despise it enough. Indwelling sin tricks us. This is how sin works. It tricks us to sleep with it. Sin deceives us. It plays tricks on our minds so that we justify our sleeping with it. If this was that or that was this or I'm going through this, sin wants to wrap our minds and tangle us so that we justify what we're doing. Can I just dive into that for a moment? 
as a pastor, I see people being dragged away by sin. And you sit down with them and say, this is not worth your marriage. This is not worth your job. And they can't see. They are as blind as a bat. Sin tricks you and it entangles you because it wants to destroy you and kill you. Because in the moment, sin feels so great and so delightful. But when the believer wakes up, we regret sinning. Sin tricks us. Just have one Oreo. I'm just bringing my own weakness in. It's America's favorite cookie, man, you know. Sin is like, just have, just, come on, just one Oreo. You can, one Oreo's not going not gonna to hurt. Next thing you know, my kids have no Oreos to take for lunch in the morning. <laughs> what happened, Daddy? <laughs> the, the devil made me do it. <laughs> it won me. He cornered me, man. He was a double-stuffed Oreo. That's all I knew. I was swinging and fighting. The next thing you know, I'm dipping it in milk, and I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I tell you one thing, I lost that battle evidently. And Paul, and Paul's sanctified new nature, he wants to carry out what is good. But see, I mean, I have an Oreo moment. He wants to carry out what is good, but his flesh rises to get him to do the contrary. Friends, there is a thin line between loving God and hating sin. And nothing is more frustrating for the believer then how little our love is for the Lord. But who will help us? Who will help us? Who will help us? We sang his name so loudly, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, God will win the competition within. Hold on, flesh says, that's not fair. I thought it was between me and you. Where did God come from? God shows up in his grace and he will defeat sin once and for all. I ended with this verse last week, and I am sure of this. I am sure, I'm trying to contain myself, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to, that's your hope, Christian, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. He. You may not know who he is. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He started the work. He's going to finish the work. And what work did God start in you? He started the work of conforming you, remember at the beginning of the sermon, into the image of Jesus. God started that work. God did that in you. God started that work, and you didn't start that work. God started that work in you to conform you into the image of his son. He started it by saving you, and he will finish it with completely changing you. In your own power, you're no match for sin. You're no match for the flesh. The law is too heavy to lift. In my own strength, I cannot lift the 300 pounds. But in the gym, we have this position called a spotter. And what a spotter does is a spotter gets over the bar. And he allows you and he helps you to lift the thing that you cannot lift. The good thing about a spotter is when you're going up and you feel like you can't push no more, all you see is hands come down and 
help lift up the bar. I said, friends, where does your help come from? You better look to the hills which come at your help, and there's some hands coming down to help lift up the bar against your flesh, to help lift up the bar against your sin. There's a God in heaven that wants, that is spotting you and keeping you. And the spotter says, come on, son and daughter. You can do it. Come on, son and daughter. Keep lifting. I'm with you. I know it looks hard, but I'm with you. Through the fire, I'll be with you. Through the storm, I'll be with you. Through the tornado, I'll be with you. God is with you. I'm so glad for my spotter in heaven. If there's a God over the bar of the 300 pounds. Now, here's the thing. Here's the crazy thing. It's really the spotter doing most of the work. You may think that you got strong. You're like, ooh, look at me. Uh Uh-huh. 300 pounds. Boom. 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 But it's really the spotter. Paul puts it this way. I worked harder than everybody else, but not me. The grace of God within me. Paul had to give the glory to God because there was something greater working on the inside, causing him to do the things that he cannot do. But let me be honest with y'all. I'm almost done. And I'm getting ready to take my seat. Y'all know when Creed 2 dropped, I got to tell you, if you were quiet long enough in the gym, you can hear the chatter in the room. Everybody wanted to be like Michael B. Jordan. Everybody wanted to be cut like Michael B. Jordan. That's one thing to talk about wanting to be like Michael B. Jordan. It's another thing to go through the process of what it takes to be like Michael B. Jordan. People want to have your praise, but they don't want to go through the process to get your praise. People want to have a marriage like yours, but they don't want to go through the process of what it takes to have a marriage like yours. People want the strength that you have, but they don't want to go through the process of what it took for you to get the strength that you had. Now, let me be honest, because I just don't want to front everybody out at the gym, because that would be hypocritical of me. I got to be honest with this morning because I too wanted to look like Michael B. Jordan. I've seen him. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. And you know what I did? I did my homework. I did some research. I said, how did Michael B. Jordan get to that muscular mass that I want to get to? I don't want to be that big, y'all know. I'm trying to be that big. But anyway, y'all get the point. Did my research and find out that Michael B. Jordan did four key things to help him get to the goal that he wanted to be. Friends, I'm going to give it to you physically. And then I'm going to show you to it spiritually. I think that these are some practical applications for you. Michael B. Jordan, the first thing that he did is he had to work out three times a day. He had to work out three times a day, six days a week. Why? Because in order for you to build muscle, you got to break the muscle. You got to tear the muscle. He had to tear it several times. Friends, sometimes God got to send you through trials for they are the treadmill in the the weight bench of, of your faith. And it's when God sends you through trials, he's breaking down the flesh so that he can build up the spirit. Sometimes God got to crush you in order to use you. Sometimes he got to smash you in order 
to use you. But here's the thing. It's not good enough to work out three times a day. I found out that Michael B. Jordan had to do something else. Not only did he work out three times a day, outside of the gym, he had to eat the right things. He had to eat the right diet because what happens is that once you break the muscle down, you need to take in protein. You need to take in nutrients in order to build yourself back up. Friends, a lot of us are going through trials, but we're not eating the word of God. We're, li- we're eating the radio. We're eating what our girlfriend has to say. We're eating what our best friend has to say. But you got to eat the word so that you can restore what has been broken. Number three, Michael B. Jordan did only exercise three times a day. Not only did he eat the right things, but he also had to rest. And here's what goes on when the muscles are resting. When you're resting, the muscles are repairing themselves. It gives an opportunity. That which has been broken, that which has been torn down, an opportunity to restore itself. Friends, ain't no point of going through trials. Ain't no point of eating the word. If you're not going to trust the word, if you're not going to rest, y'all will be with me in a second. If you don't rest in the word. Let the peace of Christ rule over your hearts. Amen. And amen. I know you'll have troubles in this world, but son and daughter, take heart. I have overcome the world. I wish I had some believers in the building that believe God is able to do what he said he would do. He was begun. A good work in me will bring it unto completion. Through the fire, he'll be with you. Friends. But number four, and this one right here, I almost lost my mind. I could barely take it at this point. I was like, Michael, I see that you got in the gym and you worked yourself out. I see, Michael, that you ate the right things in order that you may build up what was broken. Michael, I see that you had to rest. You rested. You went to sleep. You allowed the body to do what it was supposed to. Sometimes we got to sleep and allow God to do what he's supposed to do. I remember the verse that says, be still and know that I am God. Michael had to be still, but I came to find out that Michael wasn't by himself. Michael had a trainer, and without the trainer, Michael was nothing. Without the helper, Michael was nothing. Friends, I came to tell you that God gave you another trainer called the Holy Spirit, and he put him down on the inside, and when the trainer on the inside, he directs and guides you in the way that you should go. Eat this. Don't do that. Send him through this. Send him through that when you listen to the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one who leads us and guides us. And I pause here parenthetically because oftentimes in the church we forget about the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, you're nothing. The Spirit is your spiritual trainer. He knows what to do. He knows where to cut you and where not to cut you. He knows what you need and he knows what you don't. What I love about God is he knows when to put you in trials and he knows when to take you out. One preacher put it like this. With a cake, if you put it, if you put it in the oven and you take it out too early, it'll fall. But if you leave it in too long, 
It'll be dry and it'll be burnt. But if you take it out right in time, it'll be just right. Friends, God knows when to put you in the oven and he knows when to take you. I'm talking to somebody this morning because some of y'all going through trials and you're saying, God, when will this be over? I came to tell you that God knows what he's doing. He knows when to put you in and he knows when to take you out. All you got to do is rest in him, trust in him, keep eating your word, keep going through your trials. God has a goal for you. And every now and again, believer, you ought to just wake up and look in the mirror and say, God, am I looking a little bit more like you this morning? And your prayer ought to be this. Not God deliver me. Not God take me out of this pain. What happened when Mary and Martha goes to go to Jesus? Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Jesus left them there. This is the same Jesus. That could have spoke the word and Lazarus could have been healed. What does he say? This, this is not unto death, but unto the glory of God. I'm trying to help y'all learn how to pray. Stop praying, God, take me out. Stop crying. Stop grumbling and say, God, finish your work in me. Do whatever you got to do. Don't leave this flesh alive. Kill it, God. Kill it until I see more of you. Because on the other side is more maturity and more grace and more goodness. The more we know him. Father, that's our prayer. Make us like you. Change our hearts and our minds. Let us not be a congregation that just gathers to gather. Let us not be a people that gather and don't practice what we hear, what we read. Father, would you help us? We admit that apart from you, Father, we can do nothing. You are the vine and we are the branches. Father, if you don't do your good work in us, we will be as fleshly as we can be. But we believe that you have started a good work in us. And so, Father, we believe that you will bring us to completion. That is our prayer today. Would you be so gracious to strengthen the saints who are struggling in this room? Those who are flirting with the thought of quitting those who are flirting with the thought of leaving the gospel, Father, would you hold fast to them? Do not let them leave you. There is no hope outside of you. Help us this morning to not be a carnal church, but a church that truly loves you. May it be seen in how we talk, May it be seen in how we treat one another. May it be seen in our desire for your word. May it be seen in our desire for prayer. Do whatever it is that you got to do. Just don't leave us hard and cold. But leave us soft and sensitive to the gospel of Jesus Christ.